Welcome to the New Models Podcast. This episode is a kind of super exclusive collab between High Stability editor Tom Betridge, the founders of New York print-only publication Civilization, Lucas Moscatello and Richard Turley, and of course, the New Models co-hosts, myself, Lil Internet, Carly Busta, and Daniel Keller. The following conversation dives into the topic of a recent High Stability white paper created in partnership with Civilization and called Select Your Character, which through interviews and a synthesis of hundreds of responses from high snob readers, seeks to map the new frontier between gaming and fashion. With everyone on this episode being in the Millen X age range, there is an inevitable cringe factor as we problematize and theorize about what's to come from these crazy kids with their rainbow computers sitting in their room watching pooty guy play Fortcraft. What's wrong with watching bum fights on VHS and getting hand jobs in the bushes? Not good enough for you. To be fair, I'm convinced my generation exists in a parallel dimension where time moves twice as fast because literally whomst of us has time to game. But as you'll hear in this episode, many of the mysteries surrounding the enigmatic devotees of this esoteric media industry that's uh, bigger than movies and sports combined have rather mundane explanations. Fortunately, there are also extremely important questions and implications of what's to emerge from Gen G. G for gamer. I made that up. But at least for right now, the people who should be the most worried are marketers. I'm Lil Internet joined by my co-hosts Carly Busta and Daniel Keller. Our guests are Tom Betridge from High Snobiety, Lucas Moscatello and Richard Turley from Civilization NYC, and you're probably listening to the New Models podcast while speedrunning Gal Gun Double Peace. Let's get into it. today with Tom Betridge, Lucas Moscatello, Richard Turley, and it's kind of a dream crossover event for new models with the minds behind the taste-making machine that is highest nobiety and the coveted print-only NYC broadsheet civilization. We are having this conversation today to speak about a white paper that Heist Nabiety just published in collaboration with Civilization on the quote, quote, state of gaming, which, as the white paper says up front, includes culture at large, given that so much of our daily interactions today are are being gamified or have been gamified. We'll get into all the angles of this in the following conversation. But to start, Lucas, Richard, Tom, could you each briefly introduce yourselves? Maybe Tom, we'll start with you. You're just at the top of the screen. Hey, I'm Tom Betridge. I'm the editor-in-chief at High Stability. Yeah, live in New York, sometimes in Berlin. Great. We're excited to have you back in Berlin, maybe this summer for a second. Definitely. Lucas? Yeah, I'm Lucas Mascatello. I uh, do civilization with Richard. I uh, write, make a little bit of art once in a while. I also live in New York, sometimes in L.A. And today you're in Costa Rica. Today I'm in Costa Rica. And Richard? Hey, I'm Richard. I'm English, but I live in New York. Uh, I have a few hats that I wear. I suppose 
I, I do Civilization with Lucas, editor, director of Interview Magazine, and make that with Mel Ottenberg. I do consultancy. I do a bit of advertising. And yeah, but I'm a graphic designer. I mean, that's how I kind of define myself. So we have a little bit of talent on the pod today, a small bit. Um, <laughs> hopefully we can live up to it. Uh, I'm Caroline Busta. I'm here with my New Models co-host, Lil Internet and Daniel Keller. We are all in Berlin. I've got the first Vax Blues. Oh, that's true. You just got Vax yesterday. Oh, I have the first, Congrats. Yeah, the, first, the first shot Blues. Are you an Astra? No, I got Pfizer, Bio, BioNTech. Yeah, wow. we're going for Dan chef's, ki- chef's kiss. Yeah, <laughs> my arm is really sore, and I'm forgetting um, parts of words. Um, yeah. I have a headache, but that's everything else is fine. Yeah, wait till you get number two. That's the killer. Didn't do anything to me. I feel like, like I have like cockroach DNA. I like never got COVID. The vaccine didn't do anything. And now you're in Costa Rica <laughs> on some type of balcony. It looks like there's a, th- uh, a thatched roof above you. It's it's not truly thatched. It's sort of like artificially thatched. Both thatched. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can tell Costa Rica's changed. <laughs> the roofs aren't even really thatched anymore. Yeah, the higher up on the hill you get, I think the less thatching there is. <laughs> well, the contemporary day and age is full of contradictions. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Speaking of, we're going to talk about gaming today and specifically this publication called Select Your Character, a white paper on gaming and fashion. But like before we get into gaming itself, I wonder if we could briefly set up the object form of this white paper. So like we have this white paper. Why a white paper? Who is it for? Maybe Tom, this is one that you could speak to giving our listeners some context about the nature of this particular publication object, its methodology, its intended audience. Is it actually even a piece of paper? I mean, yeah, like what is it? Yeah, so actually like for the first time ever, like we kind of wanted to make it a piece of paper in like a very meaningful way. So there there are some printed copies of the white paper this time around. But I mean, basically the, the genesis of the white paper format at High Sniviety started because we started doing a lot of audience research at the brand, trying to understand what the future of this kind of youth culture X luxury market is and how it's kind of changing and what the people who read our site actually think about different topics. And I think at first, like we did it mostly to share information with clients or kind of like share insights about how their brands should be positioning themselves. But then after a while, we realized that it was like really fascinating content that people should be tuning into, both our audience, but also other people in the industry. And so this is the fifth white paper we've done. And I want to invite Richard and Lucas to work on it and take this body of research and like run wild with it. The two main aspects of it are surveying we do of the audience. We ask them questions about like gaming, fashion, and like all the different habits and details and things that they wish were skins and and all that type of stuff. And then Lucas and Richard did a series of interviews with experts to flesh out stuff qualitatively. So like they spoke to you guys as part of the paper. So you guys make a really great guest appearance in there. We interviewed Arca, the musician and gamer who has a really big discord. We interviewed the guy who's in charge of developing the gaming chair category at Herman Miller, which is actually like the fastest growing sector of like luxury chairs is like luxury gaming chairs. <laughs> you know, so we kind of like wanted to sort of approach it from like 
every single angle possible about kind of how this like weird collision between the luxury market and the fact that like the youth basically lives on gaming like how are those two things going to coalesce because i mean you don't normally think of like gaming and luxury in the same sentence but now it's becoming clear to even the brands themselves that in order to kind of reach a gen z market they're going to have to upload themselves into this like metaverse <laughs> yeah totally i mean both gaming and luxury are forms of escape in a sense so there's something in the dna that shared there i mean just in terms of if we're talking about the white paper itself in a medicine yeah. what was the incentive for the participation of all the people you talked to was there one i mean yeah i guess i'm kind of understanding how did uh, you gather your data yeah, is, was there pushback to your audience being instrumentalized? Or, or were they into it? Did yeah. they want to be pulled? I think people are like really interested in like sharing their opinion on these types of topics, especially our audience. Like we, we speak to a very kind of like a sort of style buff type of audience that really wants to weigh in and give their opinion about these kinds of things. Yeah, I think it's like a kind of para-professional, pre-professional atmosphere. Like high stability is interesting because it has so much like aspirational subtext and it has so much like secondary tertiary market stuff happening around it. So it's like when Tom approached us, I, I sort of felt like that was one of the main benefits is it takes us a little bit out of like the context of general consumer research and into a new space where people are thinking about like launching their own brands or being entrepreneurial or being scammers or whatever. It's very capital oriented and like very aspirational. So capital is not taboo in the space. I think that's critical. It's already a given. Like there's going to be the circulation of capital. You might as well get in on the game. I think so. And whether that's like clout or like financial capital, I think High Snobiety and, and its audience are interesting because they're people who are trying to enter the cultural production machine or people who already have. I thought it was also really interesting. One of the stats we started with is that like 80% of our audience describes themselves as a gamer. Yeah. I mean, for like a site dedicated towards style, like seems unlikely, but then it also completely makes sense. But then also like what people describe a gamer to be, I think they were hyper aware of this idea that like being a gamer doesn't mean the same thing it once did. Like it's not like the Simpsons comic book store guy model of being a gamer. It's more of like, a different thing, you know? And so in a way, like they would describe themselves as a gamer, but like they hold that idea like an arm's length. This idea that gaming is a subculture, I think is clearly becoming more and more relevant because it's basically like calling someone a gamer who's Gen Z is like calling someone like who's a baby boomer, like a television watcher. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> totally. it's like everyone's doing it, you know? So it's like not, it's, I think it's kind of gone mass in this interesting way. Totally. I mean, you know, gaming is a place of escape, escaping pressures of physical life, pressures of digital life in the sense that gaming is a place of desublimation. You know, in gaming space, you can kill, you can slay demons. You can also be the demon in gaming space. You can be killed or exhaust your avatar to death and restart and play again, which you can't really do in physical society or even digital society outside of gaming space. And I just wondered, like, as a way of even framing this conversation, I'd be interested to hear what your mental maps are of game space. Game space isn't just like in-game, right? And how can we differentiate gaming space from the rest of the internet? I think there's this conception that like being online and gaming space are like kind of mixed together. And they are. But gaming is also something that's distinct from the rest of the internet. And how do you think of where gaming happens? Can you lay out that landscape a little bit? I mean, I think like 
it comes back a bit to this like web 2.0 versus like 3.0 type of question. I think in a lot of ways, like 10 years ago, like Instagram really kind of changed the fashion arena by like creating this mass media around people wearing outfits and taking pictures of their own outfits. With gaming, you're kind of seeing this shift from this Instagram paradigm of like being online, these kind of like really high engagement things where people are spending hours and hours on these kind of niche places and making close relationships. Now people, they want to express themselves in these places and like think about what they look like there, you know, either by creating a totally different reality about what they look like or reflecting what they think of themselves as aesthetically. Like, Mm -hmm. but I feel like with game space, it just seems to be a lot more sticky than like what we think of as like social media now, which I feel like is the online pastime of like a more like millennial general. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even more fundamentally, just sort of like about participation versus observation. Like a lot of the internet is for looking and kind of surveying and finding stuff. And in my mind, gaming is more about the point when you start to participate Hmm. And you encounter the rules of a system and you start to think about what it might look like to win or to get what you want and have that sort of interactive relationship. I don't necessarily think that video games alone are all that different from like posting in a forum or being really active in like a crypto community or whatever. It's really just about this idea of going from being passive to active or like trying to find a way to imprint yourself on something and get something out of it. Once your agenda collides with the interface or something, you start to have a little bit of a gamified experience. Yeah. I mean, also broadly, when you were describing gaming, it's like you could have been describing TikTok as well, which is probably what separates it from Instagram is that Mm -hmm. participation, rules of participation. I love participation versus observation. I mean, that makes so much sense. Participation versus observation as a difference between gaming space and the rest of the internet. But doesn't... I, it seems so much like a web 2.0 social media accounts as that, especially you know Twitter, where the constraints of the system mm. are are so specific in the same way that you can only interact with it in a very limited way, like a game. There's definitely points. You're trying to get what you want. For me, it, it doesn't seem like a break from that, how that blends over into just how people are interacting with each other these days and sort of like how game theory in general kind of leads to this zero-sum competitive thinking. There's definitely competition, and there's also just like play and fun, the variable of some games being better than others and some things being more fun than others. Like, you know, when we talk about gamification, it runs the gamut from like a marketing tactic to like a genuine form of play and escape. And where Twitter plots on that versus Second Life versus... Call of Duty is sort of dependent on like what kind of reward you're looking for, whether it's monetary or it's growing a social network or finding someone to have sex with. Like there are end games or goals in mind that turn these interfaces or experiences from being sort of like media experiences into play or gaming experiences. Yeah, I mean, I also think like with the sort of like fashion market in general, like you had this kind of gamification of that market that also opened it up to a lot of new people, you know, so with resell culture and like the secondary ability to flip clothing or sneakers or whatever, in a way it really kind of gamified something that was normally reserved for older and mature people and kind of made it more mass, easy to participate in or like hack or win. Um, and so like 
through Grailed or Depop or these yeah, kinds exactly. of sites. Yeah, and I think like for example, like this idea of like a Grail, like that feels like such a game, like such a World of Warcraft system of thinking, where it's like, oh yeah, like this is a super rare Sigil. like Raph Simmons bomber jacket. <laughs> In a way, I feel like the gaming logic kind of like invaded uh, fashion already through that sea change. In some ways, of course, there's a difference when something is considered part of real life, regardless of its gaming mechanics. I mean, Twitter is constrained by and has all of these sort of built-in incentives and gaming mechanics, but people still consider it quote-unquote real life, you well, know? Right, this is no what I was getting at. argue this about Of like, Fortnite. where is gaming and where is the internet, right? Like, where does gaming end and like the rest of quote-unquote real life, like internet begin? Like, where can you get canceled? Where can't you? Where can right. you slay? Where can you die and restart again and it's fine? Where can you not? Maybe the way to approach that is to ask the question, where can't you do all those things? Because it feels like you can kind of just do all those things everywhere now. I mean, I know it's a little bit of a trope just to say that, you know, we live in a gamified world, but it strikes me that, you know, there's a no, lot I of truth agree. to that, you know. I think it's about play styles, too. It's like some people are going to play a lot harder than others and, like, will leverage an Instagram account or a Twitter account into, like, real-life, tangible, physical benefits. And some people are just, like, anons who will lurk and, like, play passively and some people are looking for like completely different exchanges i think i agree with richard in the sense that like the tactics of gameplay can be applied to a lot of these different spaces and that it's hard to escape them i I think it's it's also just about like people's personalities starting to express themselves and how they play these games and that becoming a new way the pivot that was was when the exoskeletons was exposed, right? Where any kind of media contact you had, you know, ha- has a kind of a metric at the top or the bottom, or it has a like button or it has a heart. And as soon as you have that built into modern life, then everything has been gamified, right? Everything is a kind of a cloud chase. It's just really difficult to escape that on any level. It's like you're talking about like once the kind of rules or mechanics or infrastructure start to become apparent, then the gameplay becomes unavoidable. Yeah. And I think the more things have rules and systems applied to them, the more likely we are to see the world that way and begin to manipulate it to be that way. So it, it is a bit of a chicken and egg thing. Well, but we're being manipulated, aren't we? It's not, we're the ones being manipulated, right? It's just in order to participate on those platforms and this, you know, and to share stuff and whatever, that you have to engage in that process of wanting to be liked. kind of attention some form yeah yeah i also think that like gamification is very different than gameplay and like gamification when i think about that term i think much more about like it's manipulating the player and trying to encourage certain behavior it reminds me of the behavioral insights team nudge unit this type of behavioral economics theory and like in these online spaces they're constantly trying to optimize it for attention but that's just because attention is capital for them. So it's this very simple optimization mechanism happening on every level and not to increase joy or play, you know. So maybe there has to be some kind of distinction between consensual gameplay and gamification. I think that also brings up an important point. Part of the things we wanted to talk about in this paper was this idea of there currently being a space that's almost like impenetrable to a certain type of marketing because in a way the job of marketers is to like be in places where the people they want are and so if like all of these people are in video games and now you have 
the luxury market trying to figure out, okay, how can we be in video games now? Mm. You see a lot of interesting things happen where you're like, wait, why is Gucci making digital flip-flops for $12? You know, or why? <laughs> or like, why is there a Gigi Hadid, like Vogue video game now? You know, and so I think like we also wanted to look at these interesting early experiments and like figure out what they were about or if they were actually working or yeah. none of the above. Yeah. It's also hard to define. What's the consensus on that? Are, are yeah. any of these things working? Because I don't you know. Say. I mean, like, yeah, were any they were really successful? Because I mean, I think the Balenciaga. Everyone just said they couldn't even play it on their phone. To, to hit the kind of Gucci kind of Balenciaga thing, I think. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, everything's just a PR release, isn't it? Yeah. On, on some level, but you know, I come from the sort of shitty advertising world, and all you're really making work for is you know, like an ad week link. Do you know what I mean? No, it, <laughs> yeah, it kind of yeah. like work in, in that space doesn't really exist anymore unless it's kind of like validated by some source. And so I think you know, I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's the end of the line for Gucci and kind of Balenciaga, and I'm sure they'll keep experimenting. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not to say that that stuff isn't interesting, but you know, it's hard to look at that stuff really and not think that it's just a mood board somewhere that someone said, right, we should do this and we should kind of like mm. move into this space and kind of this is interesting and hey, the kids are here, isn't it? I mean, because I've been in those conversations <laughs> where people are trying to work out, you know, trying to figure out what Virgil Abloh does. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, these are, these are a lot of kind of like old white men trying to create some links to a world they don't really understand. And so it's hard to, to differentiate that thinking from Balenciaga and Gucci on some level. Yeah. Like, I think it's also just like the nature of games is brutalist and like winning and losing or are, are metrics that are like pretty absolute and because it's hard to define what success means in these spaces often it is the lowest common denominator and like turns out you don't even need to like things to become addicted to them like you can have a shitty experience that is totally addictive and successful and absorbing and that's maybe the difference between gaming and gamification is it's like yeah maybe twitter is not as much fun as warcraft or whatever but like it is hard to deny that it is getting more downloads not that that's the exact comparison but i think what we're finding is is that there are gamified spaces that engage people on levels that are surprising and consuming and addictive and that it doesn't even necessarily need to be like a pleasurable experience. Yeah, the Farmville evolution of gaming. I mean, I think it used to be like the metric was like, if we make this game really fun, we're going to sell a lot of (laughs) copies. That was, you know, (laughs) and then the instruments became too finely tuned. We, I think we've talked about this term all the time, refinement culture, and the effect that that has on game design. It's smoothing, but it's also corrosive. And yeah, you can definitely get into these experiences that are designed to addict, not enjoy. And I guess that's like gaming, but it's something else. It's more like hacking. There's also media. I mean, Grudge tells you every day that the world is about to end. Yeah. I wouldn't say it's pleasurable, but every morning I still look at Grudge because it's, it's, it's somehow stim- yeah. it's stimulating, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's an important thing to touch on. When you think about luxury and fashion trying to intersect with people who are pleasure-seeking in fashion being expressive or escapist or playful, It's hard to match the kind of amplitude of that stimulation. You know, somebody who's like jacked into a game or like glued to their Twitter screen. Mm -hmm. And so I think Richard is right when it's like people are trying to figure that relationship out. And Tom put it pretty well in terms of like 
brands trying to arrive where people already are. And I don't think it's a given that just because you're in a space where you're kind of suitably jacked that you necessarily want to be dressed in Gucci mm-hmm. or in some way can demonstrate some kind of like brand alignment. You know, And I think that's probably this bigger issue that these larger kind of clothing brands face is that, you know, I've got like a 14-year-old kid and he buys skins all the time. But from talking to him, it's a very low priority in terms of some kind of like branding alignment. There are a whole set of codes and prompts which he's trying to demonstrate to others and, you know, a brand logo is definitely not configured into that thinking. I mean, I guess related to that, Richard, um, in lieu of brands, it seems, you know, in the 90s, people were brand conscious and there was no logo and there was a consciousness around flexing with a Margiela tag or something that was like a subtler way of showing your brand identification. But now that we're in gaming space and brands don't work exactly the same way, are there still any forms of signification that sort of taking the place that brands used to fulfill? I mean, I think it's memes. It's like... It's memes. Yeah, it's like if you look at like crypto Twitter, it's like people put up laser eyes and then everybody's avatar is like a couch and then everybody's avatar is like a crypto punk. Mm -hmm. I think fashion wise, it's more about like the meme and like the joke and like communicating that level than it is about like consumer status of traditional luxury brands like Mm -hmm. the scarcity in the game comes from like achieving things and like earning high points and getting the good armor or it comes from like being enough of an insider to understand why you would make your character look like the sofa I mean, it's kind of this question of value, isn't it? What is value? What Gucci or one of these kind of bigger brands is trying to kind of figure out in the real world that their value is X and kind of digital world, their value is Y and trying to kind of improve the value in that sense and kind of to Lucas's point about, you know, what is value and it is spending a lot of time on a game and so like Talking hours. I noticed in your ARCA interview, she was like, I spent 50,000 hours or some like incredible amount. It was like a stat that she dropped. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the amount of time I've committed to this. I mean, if attention is value, I mean, that's an insane amount of value that an individual puts into a game. I, don't... I also think of, though, just the analogy to like Bitcoin running on like proof of work, right? Mm. It's like it does all these calculations, uses all this electricity, all these GPUs worrying just to generate this virtual value. Yeah. But gamers are essentially like doing the exact same thing like spending hours of worrying GPUs, all this attention, solving essentially what are very complex puzzles to win the game yeah. in order to just generate a piece of virtual value. Yeah. And I guess the enjoyment along the way is the one difference. But I mean, I find it really interesting just how, I mean, there is no calibration of value anymore whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people becoming like millionaires in one month because they put into Shiba coin because, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, well, if one dog coin does good, another dog coin will do good. Yeah, it it seems like there is no calibration of how labor translates into value. And I wonder if that decalibration of value, the decoupling of value is a tough thing for luxury brands to reconcile. Well, you know, looking at all the conversations and also the comments we got from the readership, there's this kind of fork in the road where... You could either see all the exclusivity and reflections of wealth and capital of the real world just getting reflected one-to-one in the gaming world. Like, oh, let's make a super, super expensive skin the way that like people are buying and selling super, super expensive NFTs. And, you know, let's make like 
a one of one Birkin that's digital that you can like, you know, only one person has it or whatever. But then I think on the other side, you could see a situation where this idea of value gets totally problematized and challenged. And I think one part of that is the fact that it becomes a lot easier to make this shit yourself in the virtual mm-hmm. world, you know? And so this idea that all these kind of like artisanal processes that kind of underpin a lot of the luxury mythos dissolve in the digital world. We spoke to one of the developers behind the Balenciaga game. He was saying that for most people, like they are actually learning to just design their own virtual clothing. Interestingly, like a quarter of the readers we spoke to said they had already designed some form of virtual clothing for themselves on one platform or another. And so, you know, I could totally see a situation where like the means of production get like democratized, but then I could also see a situation where kids are like using their mom's credit card to buy like a $5,000 like Fortnite X Balenciaga bomber jacket or something. I don't know. I feel like one of the big variables in like a speculative economy is like absurdity. Right. And it's like, okay, things are fucked up. Like I'm going to buy the shittiest coin I can buy. Cause like that is actually like a pretty rational thing to do. And the climate is absurd or like, if you want to create a game space where you can look like anything, like obviously someone's going to be like two dicks glued together or like Kermit the Frog, like that stuff I think shakes out and then creates new norms. And I think there's like a lot of anxiety about how absurd and speculative things are in this moment. And like, if it really is going to sustain and be as ridiculous in the future if luxury can be pulled or value can be pulled from like unknown sources. I tend to think that it's it's like more of an adjustment period and particularly like with cryptocurrency and high risk games, like there will be a lot of like losers and bag holders. And that's like a huge component of gaming, right? Is like you can't create luxury if there aren't pores and you can't like create status if there aren't losers. There's a kind of dark side of this stuff that has yet to emerge where like we don't really know what it looks like to lose these days. I was just going to ask if you think the terms of losing are changing. Yeah, I think it's like you can lose all of your money in two seconds, right? Or you can like get canceled forever or you can you know, maybe be forgiven or maybe you can make it all back in one trade. Like I think the speed it's, that's such a tacky thing to say, but like things are moving faster. Right. And like the likelihood that volatility will create ideal outcomes is slightly less than it creating non-ideal outcomes. And I think right now we're seeing a lot of people talking about winning and a lot of brands putting money into these experiments, but we haven't, figured out what happens when those experiments like don't return on investment Mm -hmm. or like what happens when the market crashes or whatever, like not to be a doomer about it, but yeah, like these systems are just too new to know what it looks like to really lose. It's like if you were one of the first coal miners and you didn't know you'd like get black lung from being underground all day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, of course, like absurd valuations is part of how luxury works, you know, that's part of the sales pitch. So it's not that different than, you know, buying an absurdly valued cryptocurrency. But a key difference is like the people who are buying overvalued things right now, it's because there's a sense that there's upside. Whereas generally you're buying a luxury good, it's to flex. So I do wonder, 
are people who are making lots of money on crypto, are they buying luxury goods? Like, I kind of don't think so. I think there is a mindset right now of like actually saving all your money and only putting it in like places of maximum return, which is like a gamified way of thinking things. It's actually much more rational, of course, than like buying luxury goods in a way. So I just wonder like... Well, it's funny because I think like in a way, like this kind of Garden of Eden, like biting the apple moment for luxury was when this idea that you could like resell your luxury goods became like a thing, right? Because it's like the real luxury is to buy something and consume it, but to buy a Birkin bag and like put it on a pillow on top of a chair at a restaurant so like it doesn't get fucked up so you can like maybe sell it on the real real. Like that to me like isn't luxury. It's almost just like having like a real life like speculative object that you're like toting around. And it's funny too because I mean there's obviously all those like business insider type articles about how like the Birkin's like more stable than like gold over the past like 20 years in like terms of how it's retained its value but as as you kind of alluded to dan i think like in a way like speculation is kind of like the antithesis to luxury in in some in some respects because i think like Mm -hmm. i think luxury almost necessitates like wasting something or like consuming it or imbibing it but obviously in a game you can't do that like in a game like your jeans you buy for your skin don't get crotch holes after a while. You know, like they don't, like they stay, they stay mint condition forever, I guess. There are examples of games where like you have to burn your character or delete your file to win, like near Automata, that I think are just interesting examples of like how time and waste and luxury and those things intersect where like to actually finish the game, you have to delete your save file or in hardcore video games, there are conventions of like having to erase or like delete the thing that you've invested your time in. Hmm. So I don't know exactly where that falls on the continuum of luxury, but there's there's definitely an acknowledgement that like you giving up what you've achieved in the game is synonymous with completion and realizing the real value of the thing. The Eve clinification of gaming logic or something. I mean, we have these conversations. We're doing some community projects with new models. And there was a lot of talk about, well, what do we do with all the project files once we have? We're creating a book together. Codex. Actually, Tom, after your big flat now, this idea of scroll versus codex, we're calling it a codex. And we're precipitating 2020, which was this really wild year, how it was processed on our Discord. And there's been a lot of conversation about, well, what should we do with all of the files? You know, we scrubbed all the text from the Discord and we collected all these images and memes and whatever. And the answer, I mean, we'll see, but I think everyone's like, just delete it. And it only feels like the object then gets value when the digital is just evaporated. So there is something to that. And just this idea of data obesity and like us even being able to find it anyway and digital dust accumulating. And yes, you want a game, but like, are you ever really going to go back to it to look at your high score? Or like, what is our relationship to decay and to an archive in this space? You get a closet where you could save all your Birkin bags. Even if they had horse manure from the polo grounds or something on the bottom of it, you'd still put it back in your closet. But you don't really have that sense of a closet in digital space like you're always living in the now more or less or whatever time you stopped your game i guess and it's like how do you spatialize where you 
are. How does time work when you're playing all these different games? And after you finish a game, you just leave it behind. Like, how do you relate to these gaming spaces after you've quote, quote, completed them? The idea of completing a life, you're completing multiple lives and maybe you have different friends in these games and maybe you see them in different games. Or, I mean, I say this not as a gamer, but someone who's interested in digital spaces. But I am curious of what we think about how we spatialize these spaces after we win them or complete them or die in them what happens i mean what memories do you have of playing a game too are they clear are they specific i can only recall vague moments of playing video games i can recall the game but nothing specific no incredible thing that happened no but you have like in your IRL live space, you have like these snapshots that you look back on. But in gaming space, I guess people take screenshots or you guys would know better than I would. But how do you engage with the past in gaming space? I, I'm sorry, but I just keep on thinking about, you know, the Seinfeld episode where George tries to preserve his Frogger high score. that's on <laughs> the arcade machine. And he's struggling <laughs> to keep it. So that's the old way. I mean, I think... Uh, and Steam and on a lot of these platforms, it, it tells you how many hours you've played. I think people use that as a badge. Very often you'll see that in these forms. People say, you know, I have a thousand hours and it's supposed to be impressive, not pathetic. I feel like, although <laughs> it depends on the game or like the quality of the game. So, I mean, I think there's that. But I, I can tell you that like there, were, I had a summer where I was addicted to Fortnite a couple years ago on my phone. I only played it on my iPhone. And like I can still remember the places like I could navigate around it if it was in real life. Like I could still remember it like to that level. So I think that it's very possible to have a fully rich spatial type of memory mm. when it comes to games and like very specific memories of playing them. Or maybe it's not like moments in them, but certainly if they're immersive games, I can I don't know. That's I think especially with like online multiplayer, it like makes it more real, right? Because it's like you could even do something on Fortnite that someone else remembers. Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, I grew up playing like N64 and stuff like that. And like, I feel like in a way they're like these kind of like intimate fever dreams of like playing Mario party by myself for like eight hours or something. Right. And like no one else saw that with like Fortnite and stuff. There's like a sort of like village that is like witnessing what you do as well as just yourself. You know, I think that adds like another dimension to the memory. Yeah, and the feature in a lot of those games that as soon as you die, it immediately the perspective sh- comes over to another player and you're watching someone else play. So I, I mean, just in general, the fact that Twitch is however much it's worth definitely means that there's, I mean, I think people, they're watching live gaming, but they watch recordings of it too. Like that's such an intrinsic part of gaming now is creating memories or recording them. So I used to play Zelda Breath of the Wild a lot and it was during a summer where I was doing like a lot of ketamine. And I remember that game like super well. And I, I think like there is kind of a psychedelic s- space between like real world and game world that does kind of make fever dream logic. That's an interesting point because that Fortnite summer, there was also a lot of ketamine, I remember. Yeah. And maybe that is part of how rich those memories are. And I didn't really think about that before, but yeah. They're narcotic and they're like, they're addictive and they work well in like an altered state, I guess. That's sort of a weird thing that they're made for kids, but. Ketamine <laughs> is liquid internet. Yeah, it's it, true. But I mean, also because in the physical space, and maybe this is more of a millennial thing, but there is always the impulse to 
re-virtualize your lived experience. I mean, we live in an area where it's somewhat picturesque and you just see people gramming themselves constantly, mediating themselves constantly. And my understanding, I mean, of course you can take screenshots or whatever in gaming space, but like you're kind of free from that compulsion to constantly mediate the primacy of experience because it's already mediated by the screen. So like you don't have like, oh, I need to gain value from my lived experience while I'm going through. You're already in the game space. Like you don't need to reassert that. And so it's kind of interesting. I mean, I was talking to some friends also about what does de-virtualization mean versus de-sublimation? Like how do you actually de-virtualize something? There's the Capitol Hill insurrection, which is a de-virtualization. GameStop is a de-virtualization, but de-virtualizing into what? Into like a live space that is somehow like less screen bound than the one that you're in. And so, I mean, what are these membranes between these different spaces? I'm digressing here, but uh, I, I do think that there's something that's freeing about a gaming space. We're already in a game logic. So you don't need to like further capitalize on it. Well, there's also like the looming augmented reality question, right? It's like Apple is making these augmented reality glasses. Like my friend's girlfriend who's in Costa Rica, like works for Apple and will neither confirm nor deny their existence. But like (laughs) in writing the report, we talked to a lot of people about designing clothes in digital space and using digital first production methods that can sort of bifurcate into physical production or digital production, you know, and architecture and clothing design being sort of like early stages of where that's most possible, right? Like if you can change the way that your space looks and make it more metaphysical or make it more of kind of an interspace or or I guess a metasphere, like I guess those pressures return, right? Like then you do have to document it or you have to invite people over. I think We're in kind of a weird place now where like these experiences are siloed, but it's less and less the case. So maybe we should just enjoy it while it lasts. One thing I keep thinking of, though, is just like, I mean, the reason I don't play video games now is time. Like time is like the one scarce, stable resource that everyone shares and that's always running out and like, yeah, people bragging about playing 50,000 hours of video games or something. Such a flex. Where is that? Yeah. It's I more mean, of that, flex than owning a Burka. I mean, yeah. Having, yeah, just the fact of, I mean, talk about the luxury of, of being able to waste or spend something on something totally unnecessary. I mean, all of that time is already a luxury in my view. Like, I don't have that time. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, where does the time come from for gamers? I mean, I'm also especially confused about kids who play video games, but like also taught themselves how to shoot and edit videos and do After Effects and fucking Cinema 4D. Like, are we all sharing the same time, actually? Wait. I mean, it's not all or nothing. I mean, I don't think you have to be like... I mean, I guess very often it is all or nothing, maybe. I mean, a lot of people are on and underemployed, especially young people, especially these days, especially in the last year. So I think there's a lot, I don't, I don't think time is as scarce as it it was. And it's, yeah, time is not valuable for, I think a lot of people. That's a huge problem in society. And this is like why you have UBI. I don't know. I mean, it's not like. Youth is wasted on the young. But I also think in a way like for like a young cognitive laborer, I think like wasting your time or being counterproductive is like in some ways like subversive. Like, you know, you're basically taking that productivity that would normally contribute to 
I don't know, being a project manager at like a agency or something and like casting it into the fire of a fortnight or whatever. And I, I kind of relate it to the teenage experience as well, because I feel like, uh, you know, I spent my teenage years like aggressively trying to waste my time and damage my brain and do nothing like at all costs. And so I think that in a way that was about not participating in society or not doing what was asked of me in some way. So I think it's, it can kind of cut both ways. Cause I think Dan's totally right. Like there's tons of underemployed young people out there who like literally have nothing to do. Like there's people who watch YouTube for like 12 hours a day. That's part of it. But then I think even for the, like the white collar class, I think there's a temptation to want to just start wasting time. I don't know. I think it's just a social space, isn't it now? I mean, again, I'm like thinking about my kid. I mean, he just done some math on my piece of paper here and like five hours a day that time stacks up pretty quick mm. so I think you know and that's where certainly my kid hangs out you know he's got multiple screens but also he's kind of talking to his friends he's kind of hanging out yeah. so I don't think thinking about these spaces is like I'm gaming they're just hanging out just my mm. social space was kind of like hanging out outside it's just that idea of wasting time being with your friends and if your friends are all playing Fortnite together and you can kind of chat to them and you can go and win a game that is where their interest is and that's yeah. where their social space is I don't think it's any more complicated than that. Yeah. People gravitate to the space that they are most likely to win in and play the best in and mm. perform the best in. Like, I think that's changing as, as like technologies and opportunities emerge. But like, yeah, there are people who are going to be more comfortable being social online. And it's easy to talk about the negative effects that could have on people or paint a picture of people living in like, Japanese businessman hotels with like a VR headset pretending they have a mansion or whatever. But like the other counterpoint of it is like if it's easier for you to make money by like meeting people in forums and like doing Photoshop jobs for them or by like trading crypto, then like that's probably what you'll do. And I think what's confusing for adults and for brands is like if you're like an older person, it's hard to imagine that you could like meet someone and have sex with them like through a video game. Right. And so, like, I think a lot of the subtext is like people are wasting time or missing out or that they won't have certain experiences. And that's partially true. But it's also that those experiences just sort of like look a lot different than they used to. Yeah. And it's the same anxiety with that like, people watching kind of cable TV for 10 hours a day. You know, I, that was the, sort of the anxiety that was kind of pushed down from me, from my parents. You know, every generation sort of shifts along and freaks out the one above. But aren't kids not having sex anymore? I mean, statistically, like the lowest rates of teen sex, like, I mean, I think since they've been keeping track of that, right? So it clearly is having some effect. The thing I've, I try to wrap my head around, especially as like a someone who runs a publication, is like, I feel like, you know, these games are so sandboxed from one another, you know? So like, if you wanted to speak to gamers, like if, for example, if you're trying to find like a celebrity to profile or something, there's only like celebrities or professional gamers within specific games you know and so then you kind of like have these groups of people who are all doing this thing called gaming but they're actually like doing it in like parallel universes one another that don't really overlap at all um so like i think you know and part of the job of like making a magazine for example is to find these unifying ideas or figures or celebrity totems but i feel like in a way, if I wanted to speak to the gaming community, it's like it's stupid to even call it a community. If I want to speak to gamers, quote unquote, as like a group, I don't know who I would like pick to send that message. And I feel like for brands, it's hard as well. You know, like they can't just be like, 
oh, who's the Beyonce of gaming? And like, can we put her in, in our clothes? You know, because that person doesn't really exist. But but aren't there huge streamers? I mean, isn't it just streamers? And there are like streamers who play multiple games, you know, that are just like, they'll get the game first. What's the guy? Well, I'm Destiny? But he's a political, he's right. like a bread tuber, but, but also games. I mean, I think if we're speaking about gaming, also just mirroring what Lucas and Richard, what all of you were saying, is that gaming is happening in this hybrid space across lots of platforms at once. That image, Richard, of your son with multiple screens, YouTube is open, comments, maybe there's Twitch comments. Gaming's happening, all these informal areas, not just within the designed world. Sorry, this is a deception, but isn't like PewDiePie... Beyond the Beyonce of the gaming world, I mean, or he was anyways. Yeah. Maybe he's not yeah, big yeah, anymore. Yeah, nice to yeah, I mean, it seems like yeah. it seems like the celebrity concept ports pretty easily, especially because of streaming. If there wasn't for that, then I don't know how you would uh, address a gaming community. That would be a totally different thing. But I think it's like we're trying to find a pop culture and various subcultures like in these landscapes, and so there are standout stars who immediately feel like they're separate from gaming because gaming is supposed to be subcultural right so like corporate person like ninja to me is very hard to reconcile with speedrunners or like people modding games like it seems almost like that's sort of like a layer of film that's on top of this thing that gives brands the impression that it might resemble the world they're coming from I think the elephant in the room is the user-generated content and how quickly a lot of the things brands can make could be made by people and how similar a lot of the content that streamers are making really is. Do you really want to watch the streamer? Do you just want to watch their screen? You know what I mean? Like, does it really matter Mm -hmm. what they're saying on top of it? There's even like a kind of weird level of like coded language that a lot of these people use. To me, the level of like kind of celebrity gaming and YouTubing is like super monotonous and almost more banal than like traditional media. But maybe I'm fucking old. I don't know. But similar to like TikTok stars, like the top, like Addison Ray and whoever the top TikTok stars, they all yeah. kind of just do the same thing. Like they're well, kind of the refinement, refinement culture. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, of course, yeah. because they're also engaged in this like just perfect metric world. They're optimizing their play. They're optimizing how they talk about how they play. You can see, you know, a literal chart of like how many people are watching you at every second, you know, and also getting reactions. I mean, it's just designed for that. So, of course, it's going to be really streamlined. I mean, I also like I do think we're probably old, but you can also say that like the quality of things in general is much more mediocre and streamlined in everything these days. So it's like I don't think we're just getting old and like when you look at yeah these youtube you kind of yeah the formats they're just i mean they're interchangeable and they're tropey well kind of awful awful tropey i mean and tiktok is just you know it's like so overtly schmaltzy and like in a way that just like would not have been passable it would not have been cool 10 years ago it's just like i don't know i'm, I'm getting on a tangent here but i think we can keep on coming back to this refinement culture thing as far as like the flip side of gamification and the worst, the worst side effect. And maybe we're being too critical. I mean, I think we can talk more about like what's good about gaming or what's interesting or what's new happening in the space. Um, well, it's like five people are trying to figure out what kids are doing, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? And the reality is, is that they would resist any yeah. attempt to define what they were doing. And this whole conversation would be a complete anathema to them. Right. It's just like, you know, we're playing games. Do you know what I mean? We're just like hanging out. And it's, I mean, it's like, I mean, coming back to a point before Daniel about teen sex, <laughs> one of my favorite subjects. The, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because 
because like we've all gone through this weird year where we've all been kind of like confined and we're all trapped in rooms and kids but more so than anyone because like you know a lot of schooling certainly over here has been kind of happening remotely again and I'm just throwing this through a lens of my kid here he's fine <laughs> my point being here is we're coming out of this very intensive weird crunchy piece of history and trying to synthesize exactly what's happened and what will continue to happen but i think one of the, those things that has happened is that these kind of like virtual spaces have becoming inherently more social particularly people who spend a lot more time in digital spaces you know and we're happy to marinate in those worlds you know my kids still chats up girls online those interactions are still absolutely going on i think the contact piece of it is a concern but the sociability pieces you know these spaces are they're quite safe in some ways no but i think that's that gets to a good point i mean it, for some people, it is really hard to socialize in reality. And the gamified, simple space is much more comfortable for them. And people who would probably literally just be shut-ins in the 80s, you know, they're actually having these rich social lives. So I think that is like, yeah, something that shouldn't be overlooked. I also think that something to like you saying that the kids would resist this conversation because I think often when you look at like crypto or you look at gaming communities, it feels absurdist or like it was designed to offend people and that's because it was the deliberately contrarian nature of a lot of this stuff should be acknowledged where it's like how people are rebelling or expressing their kind of generational difference now is not just by wearing a t-shirt that says like fuck the queen but by sort of like Mm -hmm taking it to another level and creating like a game where you fuck the queen or whatever it is like people are shocked by you know the the dogecoin thing but again i think it's totally logical if you look at it through the lens of like what would offend people the most yeah but i think as far as like looking at the like qualitative responses we got from like people who game through this paper I find it you know we're kind of like waxing philosophical about this topic but in a way like a lot of these questions are just like very very like straightforward just to read one person's like answer to what brands would you like to see in games it says depends wouldn't make sense for Louis Vuitton to be in a war zone so I would say if it was like cyberpunk 2070, some kind of branded clothing for your character would be more believable. If I were in a rough environment like Tomb Raider, then Patagonia would make sense. Maybe Columbia or Nike ACV. <laughs> like, you know, so it's like full immersion. Yeah, like I, I find it really funny because I feel like in a way, like to us, that seems like a riddle of the Sphinx. But like a lot of the questions we got were just, oh, yeah, like as you said, Dan, like immersion, like, oh, yeah, these kinds of clothes would be immersive. It was also really a really interesting thing because we asked like different types of gamers, like self-described types, like what brands they were into. And like you saw like an uptick in like a self-described fantasy gamer being into like Come de Garçon or like sort of like LARPy kind of clothes like Margella and stuff. Whereas like the 2K type player is like super into like Air Jordan. It's interesting how a lot of these things are just sort of like one to one aesthetic preferences or that feel in line with the worlds people are operating in and it's not this like it's basically normal shift yeah yeah it's not like a crazy paradigm shift that you would want to i mean it's true like product placement can have an effect of like enriching believability and immersion like in a movie if it's done well or it can really really take you out of the environment so i mean i do think it is probably a really important thing for games to start doing if they want to since a lot of these like cinematic games, like I think about what is it? Um, 
Last of Us 2. You know, these are like movie things. I remember like very key product placements in there that, you know, they become emblematic of the entire situation. It's sort of like how like all these like songs got really big through like being on the radio in Grand Theft Auto. Oh, like, yeah, I, exactly. Like, exactly. Like on YouTube, whenever I like watch like a video, music video or something, it's always like, oh, I found this song on like GTA, like whatever radio station. And it's funny too, because like, that's not that like deep. It's not like a disruptive thing. Like GTA is not going to be like the new Spotify or whatever. And in a way, I think like this meta life that's happening virtually, like I often feel skeptical of this William Gibson paradigm that there's this like radical, like stick the matrix needle in your head moment and you're in like a completely <laughs> different world. Like I think like in a lot of ways, like the virtual quote unquote is like so enmeshed in our real lives. Also, I learned from your white paper, being not a gamer, the acronym META, that means most effective tactics available. And people just refer to META as like, I mean, I didn't know that beforehand, but that's a very elegant... I've never heard that either. That's interesting. Double meaning. Yeah. Yeah, it's optimized play. And I yeah. guess there's also a kind of pragmatism to games sometimes, right? Like if the... Yeah. If, especially with ones where the idea is to win, then there, I think there's a sense of pragmatism and efficiency to just getting from point A to point B that I think people probably find comfort in because I feel like historically fashion was probably antithetical to gaming in some ways because it just felt superfluous and stupid mm. like the logic of a gamer so I think that a lot of these answers that we got you see that type of pragmatism still very apparent. Although there was a one conversation you had in the white paper with someone uh, Michael Rock who hit on a lot of points we've kind of talked, brought up of politics is resembling kind of a LARP now, um, value detaching from reality, it's just derealization. But he also mentioned his daughter, who I don't know, was a young teenager, referring to her generation as generation guinea pig, just because she yeah. recognized how all-encompassing the changes and technologies are that she grew up with compared to other generations. So there does also seem to be some self-awareness here of how this is changing people and how uncertain its effects are going to be. I mean, I guess, is that just like a fringe perspective among gamers themselves? Are most of them just like, whatever, you wear Patagonia in the mountain game? <laughs> I mean, I think it's hard to, to parse that feedback out from the fact that it comes from high snob readers who right. are like aggressively pre-professional and sort of like thinking about marketing and probably imagining who's reading the answers to the questions. I think at the same time, Michael Rock is like a strategist, right? And his kids are, are bound to have a little bit of that perspective, but... There's definitely like a work in progress element to all of these games and spaces that's pretty tangible, especially like the ones like Fortnite or like Roblox or like Minecraft that really like suck super young kids in. Like what they like about it is that it's kind of unfinished and like malleable and that they can sort of affect the space so much. Also, the one other thing I wanted, maybe this is getting too deep and there's no real answer, but... I don't know. I keep having this feeling that there's this cognitive approach to gaming, which is kind of like figuring out the rules, exploring the full map, finding the hacks to win, all of which are kind of absolute and deterministic. And that sort of framework ends up creeping out into understanding of, of the rest of the world so that 
gamers would be also looking for definite deterministic frameworks, hacks, rule sets they can follow for how society operates or expect human behavior to also have a defined set of rules or if they could figure out how the game is played, they can succeed in it. Like pickup artists, I imagine being a early example of this. And you, you wasn't see that book in, called the game. I mean, I think it was, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's probably the one thing I'm the most concerned about is how, if most of your life is spent in literal game spaces or in online damage spaces, per second or life points but, or just, well, just that a, you expect the entire world to have a set of definitive rules right. that you will be able to figure out or hack and that everything does follow some secret deterministic formula that you can find out. You see it in politics over the last few years. I mean, I mean, you see it in identity politics, particularly how groups are talked about as totally homogenized, arranged into certain hierarchies. Character classes. Character <laughs> arranged in certain hierarchies. Uh, if you do this, then why doesn't happen? I mean, I mean, I'm not too worried about like saving the souls of gamers because it, like what Richard said about like the TV generation or the cable generation or like humans are humans. Yeah. They still live in real space. The, I think it's a bit of a fantasy. Although I think it would be interesting if like other corporate forms, their logic changes. I mean, also there's a fairness in games. Like if you can imagine corporations being structured more according to the logic of games, there has to be like a path to winning. There has to be, yeah. it can't just be zero sum. Right. But so, also, I mean, I mean, if you maybe, think about like, um, sorry, if you think about like speed running or these kind of like yeah. hacking, the, the actual optimizing gameplay, it's really like you're discovering the limits and you're pushing them. It's really a creative thing. I don't think it's like you're deterministic. It's very much like pushing up against it. It's like you're hacking the matrix if you're, and I think there's. But there are exploits. Yeah. And like the more people hacking something, the more likely it is to break. And that's like the kind of crypto metaphor or like the economic metaphor, right? Is like. Yeah, and I think that that spills over into the real world yeah. too, just as much as like oh, expecting things to work perfectly. It's like knowing there are rules and they're made to be broken, basically, rather than like expecting people to act like robots. That that's my understanding. Can I ask you guys a question? You know, because I feel like you guys are central in these questions about the art world and like what does it mean that you know the art world is now engaging with all these kind of like digital communities or sub economies or whatever and i just like i'm wondering like in the same way that richard says like oh like any gamer would totally cringe at this conversation like do you feel like with art there's like the same because i feel like art is an even more medieval and rarefied culture than fashion is in, in some respects and so like do you feel like art is ever going to get that thing right because I feel like in a way, like imagining like NFT artwork inside of like, I don't know, like I'm just waiting, like I'm waiting for like someone like Jeff Koons to try to have an exhibition inside of Fortnite or something corny oh, like that. Yeah. You know, like, 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 where do you guys feel like that whole like well, folly yeah. is going? In I mean, <laughs> cause, so right? Much, cause, yeah, it'll happen right. with cause. cause yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. But so much of the art world is so cringe now. I mean, I'm not too worried about it. I think somebody will figure out a particularly interesting exploit and then others will value it and then designate it as art. And that's how it will move forward. I don't think it can be like force memed into the digital space in some way. But I mean, Lucas, that great piece you wrote for Spike last year. I mean, I think you laid out the prognosis for art right now quite well in its relation to 
value. But yeah, I feel like somebody will find some particularly interesting way that exposes the value system or a particular gaming space. Someone else will value it highly and it will be designated art. Then the Whitney or whoever will collect it. Yeah, but maybe there'll also be MMOA, the massive multiplayer online art. <laughs> yes. Huge swarms of people <laughs> yeah, gathering exactly. in a collective right. exactly. creative. Uh, I just think it's like the art world is cringe proof. Like it's, there's nothing that you could do <laughs> at this point that I think would be too cringe. considered corny enough. Oh, so cringe. I feel like so many people that were standing just outside of it being like, oh God, there's no breathing space anymore. It's all so yeah. cringe. I mean, I, think, I guess it always has been, says the meme. I kind of just imagine that it'll be a real straightforward crossover, like the next GTA, you can buy a Coons for your mansion. Like that seems straightforward. I would like to see it. Like that seems- But then that's not art though, Dan. That's like people logic, which I well, mean- we're talking about like, art, I mean, like I, art- interfacing with the with the world like figuring it out in the same way that that well fashion is trying to insert themselves that feels yeah, so slow that. and dumb right it feels like it's like not well, it. it feels like it's definitely it, like, dumb but yeah. <laughs> I, I, don't think it's I, mean, value, I don't think it's actually i'm predicting like, that a dumb thing is going to happen basically is what i'm saying <laughs> well and, and if that thing happens with the coons then it's fine because that's the model right. replicated in digital isn't it you know they're going to mint money forever yeah if they can kind of replicate that type of value in digital spaces and kind of brings us full circle. Another, another kind of like weird little anecdote is in the middle of probably about this time last year, I was talking to a banker friend of mine. And I mean, I don't know if you can remember, but you know, the economy was feeling like it was tanking and this is kind of pre-NFTs and kind of crypto and shit. I was kind of worrying about the economy and shit. Just going, what the fuck is well, what, what's going to happen? And he's gone, oh, don't worry, we'll just find something else to sell. That's what humans have done. We'll just find something else to sell. <laughs> and it, it kind of played out, you know, and, and with regards to art, with regards to, you know, actual money as it turns out but we're very good at kind of inventing things to sell and inventing value and kind of creating value where there was none i mean gold gold's pretty useless you know you can kind of you can put it inside phones a little bit there's a little bit of gold inside your phone but it's, it's just an arbitrary tantalum is what you need or... that, that we kind yeah. of decided had value well i know Tom young, to, blood. Young, young blood plasma. Yeah. <laughs> young plasma the pop artist no yeah. just young you, young plasma that you sell to old people to yeah. keep them well, I'm I hope, already I'm pumping that into my veins <laughs> I want the next issue of uh, High Somebody just to be high bodies <laughs> yeah <laughs> well Tom I know you have to go well, I, don't- I feel what you probably should have done is got like four gamers in and that might have been a much more interesting conversation <laughs> <laughs> yeah Lucas and I did a clubhouse session on this and it was great because like actual gaming design people would like raise their hand and be like uh yeah like I think this is all bullshit like I don't think <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like I just like loved like it was clearly interesting too because like I think a lot of people like hadn't thought about some of these topics before but it was fun to spar with people who actually spend a lot of time playing video games as well so they need to invent though Pokemon delivery, which is like you get your food delivered by delivery drivers, but the delivery drivers also like catch Pokemon uh, at the Bolt, end of every I swear delivery. To God, the Bolt guys. They, there's a little casino oh, yeah. metric of how rare the Pokemon is that they get once they deliver the thing, and that's how it's all managed. Yeah, for sure. That's a future of work. Yeah, that, right. That's future of work. Right. Yeah, like a GTA like plugin for your like Uber app. As a driver, yeah, totally. Fantasize about killing your passengers. (laughs) (laughs) No, the the yoga mom in the back seat is carrying eight kilos of cocaine. (laughs) According to your app. (laughs) Oh my god! All right, well, Lucas and Richard and Tom. 
thank you for sharing your thoughts with us and for putting out this cool publication. Um, if people want to access it, how do they do it, Tom? Um, so yeah, we, we sent you guys a link for the bio so people could like download the paper, check it out. I highly recommend it. I feel like the most fun part, as I gave you guys a glimpse of, is just like leaping through like raw commentary from readers. And so if you download the PDF, you can have some fun scrolling through the minds of the people who took our survey. Uh, yeah, I definitely appreciated how you have these two levels. Like you can read all comments and then you can also read the like compression meme version of the overarching sentiments. And then when's the next issue of Civilization coming out? You're also on issue five. Oh, issue God, six is maybe in the works or? It'll be a while. It'll be a while. We're like, but newspapers are kind of boring again. We just... I, <laughs> now that I the Times blew you up. <laughs> like the whole thing just feels like really gnarly and difficult and so I don't know. Yeah. Just, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. What's We're going to figure it out. Um, (laughs) that's all it's an emotional question more than than a logical question as all the best Um, publications are yeah imminent yeah but i always you always want a publication that it's maybe it's last issue that's like i always think it's the greatest trick is to think we might fold after this so okay well this may be our last issue (laughs) (laughs) maybe to close out what was the most surprising thing you learned waiting through your responses or the most hopeful or the most shocking if anything maybe there wasn't i think it's just like nice to see how entrepreneurial and like frictionless it is for young people And that while, you know, Richard and I and Tom have a lot of opinions about this stuff, the the report is really meant to present more information and ask more questions than it does make definitive kind of speculations or predictions. And I think a lot is possible, right? And like a lot of things are being created. It's just a matter of time until we sort of figure out what place they have in the economy and like in the spectrum of goods. But in terms of what they can offer people socially and emotionally, like they're already pretty fully functional. Mm. Yeah. Like I think just to kind of bounce off of Lucas, like I think something about the responses I found encouraging was just like how straightforwardly people just wanted to express themselves and thought of clothing as a way to express themselves. You know, like it's easy to just wonder like what self we're expressing anymore, especially like as we kind of go deeper and deeper down this rabbit hole of like isolation. But I think that that felt really optimistic and cool. Yeah. One day there'll be a video game that will inspire everyone to change the world. (laughs) Revolutionary game. GTA for socialist utopia. Well, there are like those games, right, where it's like you can VR, like pretend to be a person getting pulled over by the cops or whatever. Uh, like empathy, game. empathy, <laughs> empathy trainers, empathy, empathy sims. Yeah, we'll look, out. <laughs> look out for that. But can they make you a publisher? Can they make you an editor in chief game? The empathy that that requires. Once they play that game, they won't want. They to won't want to be. Uh, <laughs> well, anyway, all right. Well, thank you guys. Goodbye, Tom, Lucas, Richard. Bye, Dan. Thanks. (laughs) See you later. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to the New Models Podcast. And thank you, Tom Betridge, Lucas Moscatello, and Richard Turley for joining us. Hi, Snobiety's Select Your Character White Paper is available now through our exclusive link for New Models subscribers or visit company.highsnobiety.com slash insights. The next issue of Civilization, as you heard, is forthcoming, maybe. But you can check out what they're up to on Instagram at CivilizationNYC. 
If you'd like to join New Models, access all of our episodes, including our weekly Too Hot for TV topsoil conversations, and become part of our much whispered about Discord, visit patreon.com slash newmodels. Our home site and aggregator can be found at newmodels.io, V2 coming soon. Thank you for listening and see you next episode.